Greetings tonight in the name of Jesus. It's good to be here with you, to be here in these meetings. Again, it's been encouraging for, for me. The messages have spoken to me, needs in my heart, and I appreciate what has been shared. <clears throat> Appreciated that song that we were just singing there. What, what kingdom would you sooner be a part of? than one that is eternal, one that it will be victorious, that is victorious. I trust that we're all happy. That sounds kind of maybe a little frivolous to be a part of the church. I trust that we're, it goes much deeper than that. <clears throat> Appreciated what Brother Paul shared too just before. I think there's uh, going to be some overlap here, and not only with his message, but with, with some of the others. <clears throat> One man soweth, and another reapeth. I'd like to have you turn with me to John chapter 4, where this uh, text, or yes, this text is taken. And I hope I don't... Uh, miss too much of the point of what uh, those who made the uh, program had in mind here. But I thought to give a little bit of a background or, a, yes, the surrounding of this proverb that Jesus gave, one soweth and another reapeth. So I'd like to read a few verses here, a number of verses at the beginning here, just to give you the setting here where uh, Jesus gave this, chapter 4 of John. You will remember is Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman there at Jacob's well. And uh, I think I'll just begin reading in verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy bread. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And then we have Jesus in his wisdom and love and care presented and led and presented the truth and led her on to see her own self and she recognized that this was no ordinary man, recognized uh, him as the Messiah. And I'd like to skip down to verse 25, read a number of verses. Then the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, and went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they came out of the city, and came unto him. In the meantime, while his Disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. I didn't get that quite right. I'll start over. Verse 31. In the, me in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said his disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto eternal life, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereupon, whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. 
Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all, all things that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them and abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word and said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. We see in this passage the, there was some different sowing going on and there was some reaping. And uh, Jesus is the main figure here of and he is sowing to this Samaritan woman. And um, he was about to reap fruit, fruit unto eternal life, the salvation of souls. And Jesus told his disciples, and they were so focused on the, on the natural, the material, he said, don't say that there's four months to harvest. And some would say that uh, they're in Palestine, that from the time of planting to the time of reaping was approximately four months. And so the reaping is usually the middle of April. And so the sowing possibly here was in December. The fields had just been sowed. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't say, well, we've got a lot of time here. We've got four months before there's going to be a harvest. And Jesus was looking at the reaping of souls, the salvation of souls. And he said, the, field is, the fields are white, all ready to harvest. And possibly, even as he spoke to his disciples there, they'd come back from the city with those loaves of bread or whatever they were going to feed Jesus with. That uh, Possibly as they were sitting there, they, they could look down toward the city of Sychar and they could see these Samaritans coming out of the city after they had heard the sowing that the woman had done there among her people. And possibly they were seeing these people coming out of the city. And as Jesus looked on that, he said, look, the fields are white, all ready to harvest. Jesus was sowing and he was... There were those who were being saved by that. And I realize this is maybe missing the point a little bit of the, of the subject, but I wanted to uh, look a little bit here at this background. And really the message here, I forgot I was going to say this, that really the, the intent or the burden of this message is to impress upon us the blessing of reaping and also the great responsibility of sowing. And I want you to keep that in mind as we look through this. Now, in the description of the, or the explanation of the subject, maybe it was to be narrowed down maybe a little bit more to our time, but we're going to take a bigger look here at the thought of, of sowing and reaping. And uh, I believe that we are all reaping and we should all be sowing. And I trust we'll be impressed with that tonight. But, and we need to look at this in the, in the context of God's bigger plan for time and for eternity. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we think of the reaping and the sowing, the sowing or the reaping, however you want to say that. But there's one more thing I'd like to think of here as we think of Jesus and what he said here. As the disciples came to him with this... Uh, this bread or whatever they had bought down there in, in the town. And they came to Jesus and they, they wanted him to eat. And Jesus said, I have meat that ye know not of. And uh, the disciples were wondering, well, did somebody beat them to it? Did they, somebody else bring, bring him bread? And Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And I think I'd like to challenge us with that thought that whether we're reaping or when we're reaping and whether we're sowing, 
that the will of the Father, the will of God, his plan, his purposes, his pleasure, should be first and foremost in our minds. If you think of food, the characteristics of food, we would say is we enjoy eating. There's the satisfaction of desire. We're hungry and the hunger is satisfied. There's also refreshment and strength. And I believe that Jesus seen in doing the will of the Father, all these things were more important to him than the physical. But that's what he was gaining from that in his own life as he, came, as he realized he was here to do the Father's will. Jesus told his disciples, I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and you entered into their labors. And I'm not quite sure here at this point if, if Jesus was taking a little bit more of a forward look there of the disciples and, and their work as Jesus went back to heaven and they had the great commission to go out to spread the gospel. But I'd like to, to think of that a little bit. Whatever time Jesus was talking of here, um, again, looking at the bigger plan of God, his eternal plan and purposes, the building of his kingdom, we, we go back into the Old Testament and we, we could look at the faithfulness of, of the prophets. And uh, I think Peter talks about that, that they were, they were writing about things that they didn't even really understand as far as the coming of the Messiah. But they were faithful. They were giving the word. They were sowing. We come down to the time of John the Baptist, and he came preaching repentance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was a sowing that was going on that the disciples were going to reap, and even in maybe a little bit more of a specific uh, incident here, I thought if you think about it, you go into the book of Acts after, after Pentecost there, chapter 8, it says that Philip went down to Samaria and he preached the word of God there and, and there was just great joy in that city. And was he entering into the reaping of what had been sowed that Jesus was sowing there by the city of Sychar. Sychar and the city of Samaria were not very far apart. But I had to wonder if, if that was maybe what uh, Jesus was referring to. It's an example of how, and Peter and John came down there to Samaria then too, and, and uh, in a sense they were reaping what had been sowed, no doubt, there uh, among the Samaritans. And then... Um, as I thought further on that, the angel or the spirit told Peter, uh, Philip to head down south to the, to the desert. And here he finds this Ethiopian eunuch heading across the, the desert in his chariot. And he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. Again, there was that sowing that had gone on. And Philip, you know, led him on to the Lord there. And... You know, the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. And no doubt, back there in Ethiopia, he was sowing the seed of, what he, of, of the gospel. So those are just some, maybe a little bit side notes here as we think of, of the sowing and the reaping and how Jesus told them that, uh, his disciples, that they, he was sending them to reap where they really... Uh, had not labored. It was the faithfulness of those in the past, and we'd like to bring that more down to our time. But I'd like to then here in our next point focus just a little bit more on it is God's way. It is God's way down through time in accomplishing his eternal purposes and in the building of his kingdom. One sows and another reaps. And it's really, he's using mortal man, and I realize that thousands of years ago they, they lived longer than what they do today but let's just think about that that man maybe lives three score and ten and if by reason of strength four score but that's what God is dealing with 
in his accomplishing his eternal purposes. And so we have one generation, they're sowing. The next generation comes along, they're reaping. But they should also be sowing so that the next generation can can also reap, and, and so the process goes on. And I believe that's, that's the way God, he, that's his plan, the way he works uh, in establishing his, and fulfilling his work here on earth. He is entrusting to man the responsibility to teach his truth, and, the, and gives the accountability, requires the accountability of what we do with what we have reaped by teaching an example. So this process, there's a responsibility and there's an accountability, and I, that will carry on down to our time as we, uh, as we bring this uh, a little more practical a little later on. But I'd like to just trace that a little bit uh, what I've just said there about God's way. It's his way. It's the way he works. And I, I'd like to start with uh, Abraham, probably one of the more clear examples in the early Old Testament that we, we read about. You remember how God had come down there to, uh, to Abraham there as he sat in the door of his tent? And... Uh, it was really to come down and to see if things were as bad as Sodom as what it seemed to be. And uh, so he was there, God was there with Abraham. And, and God had something to say. Verse 17 of Genesis 18 says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And what had God spoken of him? That he would become a great nation. But you see how God was depending on Abraham to sow the seed to his children, and I think it was to go beyond Isaac, but, you know, that progression or that um, continuation. I thought that was a good example of that. We can go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm not sure whether to take time to turn to all of these scriptures, but where, again, the admonition is to, that there needs to be a teaching going on. And whether it was the keeping of the Passover and all the feasts and all that, the, the purpose of that is um, the perpetuation of truth. Is that the right word to use for that? But the, the passing on of truth so people would not forget. But we have here in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, when thou risest up, and thou shalt, not, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. There shall be his frontlets between thine eyes. And um, God's concern was here that um, when he had brought them into the land that they would forget God, but... You see the diligence that was to be exercised there by, by the parents to teach truth. They're sowing the seed so that there can be a reaping. And in this case, if you would see, I'm not sure if it's in this passage here, but there's a blessing. If they would keep the law of God and if they would obey God, then they would be blessed in this land that they were going to. There would be a reaping. Psalm 78 is uh, another scripture that speaks about this. Psalm 78. I'm not quite sure if I know right off here how many generations it's speaking of here, but it says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter my dark sayings 
I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children, showing to the generations to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he hath established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Isn't that sowing? Isn't that what God wanted them to do? He wanted them to be sowing the truth so that the next generation and the succeeding generations would have that. There would be that reaping, but there needs to be that continual sowing. We see the failure of this in uh, the book of Judges. You know, you have in the book of Joshua, Joshua is a great warrior, leader, man of God. And uh, toward the end of that book, we have his, uh, his challenge to the children of Israel. He says, you choose who you're going to serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But it's interesting to note here, if you go to the book of uh, Judges, and Judges chapter 2, and isn't, you don't get into Judges very far at all, and things begin to go south, like we say. There was a forgetting, but in chapter 2, verse 6, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of, the ser son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old, and they buried him in the border of his inheritance. And uh, verse 10, and also all that generation were gathered to the, unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And you go on, the next verse says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and turned to another God. But again, I'd like to just impress upon us, there was something fell down there. Some, somebody was not sowing like they should have been. There arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord. And why was that? Were their parents too busy in this land of milk and honey, making, becoming wealthy and uh, focused on that and forgetting that they needed to be sowing so the next generation could also reap the blessing of the Lord? We don't know it for sure, but I could imagine that that's what happened. <clears throat> Moving then on into the New Testament, we have, as we already were looking, Jesus taught. He gave the great commission to his followers. Go ye into all the world and teach the, uh, preach the gospel to every creature. There was to be that sowing. And again, we have to look at it in the light of God's eternal purposes and his desire for the church to grow and uh, for people to be brought to salvation. Just a few more scriptures that, that um, show this continuation. I believe maybe Brother Paul read this already here. Second Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 2, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So we have Paul, we have his son, in the faith, Timothy, that's the second generation, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And it, so you can again see that, uh, that progression and that, uh, the need for sowing so that there can be a reaping. It is God's way. And today, are we not reaping? Do you sense that today? Do you feel like a self-made man? Your congregation, it's all your idea. Are we not all reaping from what others have sown in the past? 
And the challenge is, are we faithfully sowing that which will bear fruit to eternal life? And again, God replaces in each, on each generation the responsibility of sowing and accountability in the reaping. What are we doing? Are we sowing? We're certainly reaping, and I'd like to um, fast forward now about 1,400 years. So what are we reaping today? And I'm not sure exactly what time frame, again, the committee had in mind when they, when they were talking about the changing of the guard and so on. Talk about that a little, in a little bit. But what are we reaping today? Who sowed what we're reaping today? This is a thought I had written down here for a little later, but I'd like to give it now. If we understand the value of what we are reaping today, as we think of our spiritual heritage, if we understand the value of what we are reaping, it should be an encouragement to us to be faithful in the sowing. I think when we lose appreciation for the sowing that has gone on that we are reaping today, if we lose appreciation for that, very likely we're not going to have much to pass on to those who are we're not going to be very faithful in our sowing for future generations. <clears throat> so what are we reaping today? And I'm impressed again as I think of the, going back, I said we're fast forwarding 1400 years to uh, the time of the Reformation, early 1500s, birth of the Anabaptist movement. And I think of those faithful men who had a burning zeal to come back to the New Testament pattern of the church. And these weren't, these weren't old gray-haired grandpas that didn't think they had much left in life and they were willing to give their lives for it. And I've been impressed with this. So the early 1500s, and a date worth noting is uh, December 21, 1525, when that small group was there and they realized that the state church was, could we say, unsalvageable as far as getting them to reform. <clears throat> and they had that little meeting there and they baptized each other. Conrad Grebel, Felix Mons, George Blaurock. And I've been impressed with this. These were young men. <clears throat> After that date, About a year and a half later, Conrad Grebel died of the plague, and he was only 28 years old. Felix Mons, two years after that date, was drowned there in that river in Zurich. Possibly around 29 years. And George Blaurock, a little bit older, but he, he was burned at the stake four and a half years after that date, and possibly about 37 years old. <clears throat> what those men accomplished <clears throat> in those few short years of sowing, <clears throat> and they basically gave their lives for in that sowing because of the vision <clears throat> they had so that we can reap. <clears throat> I'm encouraged <clears throat> when I come to a meeting like this, and I'll maybe say a little bit more about this later, but 
<clears throat> it's hard for me to grasp in a way how old I'm getting and I wonder how much I've accomplished. But when I see you younger, <clears throat> younger brethren, ste stepping up to the plate, taking responsibilities, allowing yourselves to be used in the, for the extension of, of the church, <clears throat> gives me courage. But I, I see here, I'm impressed here with these early Anabaptist leaders. Menno Simons was referred to already this afternoon. And how he, yes, he did die on his sick bed, but he was hounded. There was a price on his head. He had to go from place to place. They were sowing because of what they believed. <clears throat> it was more worth more than comfort or life. <clears throat> What was the vision of these brethren? I have seven things here I'd like to just mention as we think of the sowing and what we are reaping today. <clears throat> Their vision for the church was a fellowship of true believers. <clears throat> Secondly, and some of these are maybe closely connected, but <clears throat> a body of believers, a church that was made up of those who understood the true meaning of discipleship. Number three, nonconformity to the world. Number four, love and non-resistance. Number five, true brotherhood and love among members, and that had to do with, with the sharing and caring for each other, sharing their means, material uh, means with with needs within the church. Number six, separation of church and state. These were somewhat revolutionary ideas to what they had grown up with and what they had seen. Freedom of conscience. They believed that the state was a secular institution and that the church should not, uh, the state should not be regulating uh, the religious conformity um, or controlling the populace and that's benefits that we are reaping today even though many in our nations would not acknowledge that or have any idea but that that concept had its influence in the founding of, of the United States of America <clears throat> and we are benefiting from that <clears throat> we already heard about persecution and so on these men <clears throat> not only challenged the pagans of their time but the Christian world of their time there was a tremendous breadth and depth to their faith. Many of those in the next 100 years, if you think of, of the Anabaptist movement, many of those gave their lives. And we are reaping the benefits. <clears throat> are we sowing for the next generation? And it goes very uh, right along with what Brother Paul was saying. <clears throat> Somehow we, we seem to think that freedom and ease is our birthright. And I, I just had to think of the words of the song today. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. And when the battle's over, we shall wear a crown. And I think it's tragic 
that in our time, <clears throat> there are those who disregard, belittle, what has come down to us and what we are reaping. <clears throat> Maybe a bit more on that later. So I come down to <clears throat> maybe 60 years ago. I know I'm skipping a lot of, a lot of uh, time here. But I think at the beginning of the fellowship movement, <clears throat> it's about 60 years ago, and maybe, maybe the younger ones hardly even know what we're talking about, and, and I was not involved in it either, but I, I'm just conscious of how, with the passing of time, <clears throat> generations go, new generations come on, and we hardly know what some of these events, what some of these brethren went through, and I recently did a little bit of reading on that. I was impressed. Again, <clears throat> for them to step up face physical persecution, but it was not easy for them as they found themselves in apostatizing settings, conferences. For them to step out and to say, we want to get back to the Bible. They were ridiculed, accusations made, it was not easy for them. They were reaping, but they were also sowing. churches they came out of, yes, it wasn't as radical a move as our Anabaptist forefathers. But there were churches that were succumbing to liberalism. <clears throat> Influences of Protestantism. <clears throat> those brethren that, <clears throat> and sisters that came out of that felt alone. And I don't, don't take me wrong, brethren. I'm a generation or so from that also. But I think of our struggle in trying to drum up some enthusiasm for our fellowship meetings. <clears throat> when you read the accounts of that history back in the late 50s, early 60s, I don't think it took a lot of persuading to get those believers to come together in like-minded meetings. I should have wrote it down, the one meeting, I'm not sure where it was, maybe Indiana. It said how many people were there, and the inference was there were so many there that they had another meeting not that long after down in Ohio, I think it was. don't remember all the details. But you get the feeling there how they... <clears throat> They had <clears throat> it would have been easier for them to stay <clears throat> where they were. But they also had a zeal. They also had a concern for their posterity. And they wanted to come back to the New Testament pattern, but they were sowing. They were sowing and we are reaping. <clears throat> One of the things I, <clears throat> I should mention, well, this would be included in that, but as I thought of, of reaping that we do, even thinking of the Anabaptists and the fellowship movement, one thing I thought of that we reap, <clears throat> and maybe we don't pay that much attention to it anymore, but the confessions of faith that came out of of those trying times. 
1527, I believe, was the Schleitheim Confession that we have in our little booklet. 1632, the Dortrick Confession that we ascribe to by and large. Those are just some of the things that we read. <clears throat> Back in the early 60s, then, we have the Christian fundamentals. Again, brethren that were concerned to help the church back to being a true New Testament church. <clears throat> so we have Christian fundamentals. <clears throat> they sowed, we reaped. <clears throat> we are reaping. <clears throat> we were to look at the blessings and challenges of the sowing and the reaping. So today we're here. We're reaping. And I ask, how are we sowing? <clears throat> what are some of the challenges we face? And I, maybe I'll just bring this in here about the changing of the guard. <clears throat> that was in the description of the, or the, how to deal with this subject. <clears throat> the changing of the guard and, and what is meant by that, that the older ministers, they fade off the scene and younger ones come on, so there's this, just this continual changing of the guard. <clears throat> you may not like that term, but that's, that's what's used. <clears throat> We're reaping. previous generation <clears throat> has, st has sown and stood for. <clears throat> and Sorry, didn't know it would affect me this way. But I think of the older brethren that were our fathers. hard to adjust. It's hard for me to adjust to the fact that we're one of the older ones now. But this, again, it's God's way. The older ones sow, they pass off the scene, the younger ones reap, and they are to sow. So the next generation can reap. What are some of the challenges that go with that? <clears throat> One thing I'd like to just say, and this isn't a challenge, it's just a statement. I believe Brother Paul would have emphasized this also, but we need to remember in this sowing and the reaping and the challenges that we face, the changing of the guard is that the Word of God is foundational. It does not change. And that should give us security. <clears throat> it should give us confidence that there's a part that we need to do. There needs to be a sowing. <clears throat> if there's going to be a good harvest. <clears throat> One of the challenges is how can we build the same convictions 
of the previous generation. And I believe Paul, Brother Paul talked to that. We need to preach, line upon line, precept upon precept. We need to, it's a challenge. And as I mentioned, you could look at the example of the Anabaptists, the Dutch Anabaptists, Dutch Mennonites, again, in their prosperity and how they lost the convictions that just a generation or so before had. It's a challenge for us. How do we build those same convictions? I don't know all the, re all the answers, but as I think of our fellowship, <clears throat> and I was talking here a little bit with someone <clears throat> about the fellowship meetings and that, um, how to get that enthusiasm. <clears throat> it's really hard for us that have not experienced what the generation before experienced to come up with that same zeal and conviction. <clears throat> the Word of God is quick, powerful. It's, I think it's the only thing that we can do and to live it. <clears throat> I think one of the challenges and I see it, I've been guilty of myself. But we look at the, the past leaders of the generation or two ahead of us, and we maybe tend to be critical of the way they did some things. I believe their focus, their goal was basically right. But they were not perfect men. And if we're too critical of them, <clears throat> are you willing to say that we're perfect? What is the next generation going to say about us? Somehow we have to appreciate the principles upon which they stood and not be sidetracked or reactive to where they failed. Again, the Word of God is foundational. <clears throat> Those men were not perfect. And we tend to react, and we can look at the previous generation, and some of them recognized that they were reacting. They came out of conference. They didn't want anything to do with that type of structure. They swung over. They realized they were almost too far the other way. We can look at that. We can be critical. But are we perfect? I think we have some faults we need to look at also. But it burdens me. <clears throat> some of the anti-Mennonite anti-conservatism attitudes that are among us. And I simply say, and Mennonites aren't perfect, conservatism isn't without its faults if you want to lump the conservatives together. But I simply ask you, what are you going to replace it with? <clears throat> And so we have people arcing off, and they want to try this. And kind of like they've got to reinvent the wheel when it comes to church life. I believe they're spurning what has been sowed and what they could be reaping if they would look at it correctly. We can learn from past mistakes mistakes of others. And I'm not trying to justify <clears throat> failures. 
of the past. Jeremiah, I believe it was, wrote about the sour grapes that the children ate. Their teeth are set on edge. But just because people take a wrong course doesn't mean that those who are promoting truth are wrong. And I believe Paul, Brother Paul read that scripture from Timothy where it speaks about that the time is going to come when they're not going to endure sound doctrine. And I don't think Paul is faulting those who will be preaching the sound doctrine. But as we heard, we have an enemy that is out to destroy us. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Paul's words to Timothy, his encouragement, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. And I told our congregation already, I, I view and I realize we don't practice everything the same in our various congregations, but I view it as a trust that has been committed to us. It doesn't mean people that do things differently are wrong. It doesn't mean we never change. But if we, once we lose appreciation for what has been sown and what we're reaping, there's really no convenient stopping place. If we understand the value of what we're reaping, it will help us. It will be an encouragement to us to be faithful in the sowing. In the changing of the guard, let's not lose sight of the bigger picture. God's plan, his purposes, and that his word stands forever. <clears throat> it is said of David that he was faithful in his generation. He was the beneficiary of sowing. Yes, of sowing before him, but he was also faithful in sowing for those after him. May God help us to continue faithful so that the generations to come will have something. <clears throat>